Support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club, which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who's worked at Michelin Star Restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Additional support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. The hamburger is the most iconic American dish. Today, we'll be exploring it on its most basic level, how the meat is ground. From KVBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. stories for the hamburger than there are individual bits of ground beef in a patty. Connecticut, New York, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, Missouri, and inevitably Texas all make their claim. The name itself obviously derives from the Hamburg steak, which was appearing on American menus in the 1870s, and which is a clear descendant of the German frikadelle, a patty-shaped pan-fried meatball. Like other meatballs, as well as meatloaf, it was made with beef and bound with breadcrumbs and sometimes eggs and served on a plate. Someone somewhere put one of these between two slices of bread for convenience's sake, and the modern hamburger was born. And no doubt something like this was part of the process of attaching the name hamburger to this dish, but here's the thing that's never quite sat right with me. The structure of the modern hamburger patty is nothing at all like the fricadelle it is supposed to be a version of. The composition of a hamburger is actually somewhat unique. It's not like the preeminent ground meat product, sausage, which is heavily salted and heavily worked in order to produce a tight, firm texture. The goal in sausage making is full development of the myosin in the meat to create an interlocking protein network that traps fat and moisture and is responsible for the snappy bite. And it's not like meatballs or meatloaf, which have added binders and fillers, typically some combination of eggs, breadcrumbs, and milk, that can produce a range of different textures, from the very firm, almost bouncy style, common in many Asian countries, to the much softer kind found in the best plates of spaghetti and red sauce. The goal in a modern hamburger patty is the opposite of that. You don't want to extensively develop the myosin. You want to keep the texture loose and almost crumbly so you don't mix the meat any more than you have to and you don't add salt until just before you're ready to cook. This is a very unusual texture for a ground meat dish. Here's a pretty good sounding recipe for a hamburger patty. Eat the muscle pulp of lean beef made into cakes and broiled. This pulp should be as free as possible from connective or glue tissue, fat, and cartilage. Beef should be procured from well-fatted animals that are from four to six years old. The pulp should not be pressed together too firmly before broiling, or it will taste livery. Simply press it sufficiently to hold it together. Make the cakes from a half inch to an inch thick. Broil slowly and moderately well over a fire free from blaze and smoke. When cooked, put it on a hot plate and season to taste with butter, pepper, salt. Also use either Worcestershire or Halford sauce mustard, horseradish, or lemon juice on the meat, if desired. That, from the 1888 book, The Relation of Alimentation and Disease, is the basis of one of the earliest American fad diets created by James Henry Salisbury after his experiences as a doctor in the Civil War. He recommended consumption of these patties, which became known as Salisbury steaks, three to four times a day, along with large amounts of hot water and a minimal amount of yeast-raised bread. Fruits, vegetables, pickles, pancakes, beans, soups, and cornmeal were all strictly forbidden to the sick person, 
and allowed in extremely limited quantities to healthy folk. Something about fermentation in the gut, which is the unifying obsession of quack food writers of all stripes, each of whom has their own list of banned and healthy foods. His recommended diet is at best completely boring and at worst a recipe for colon cancer. You have to admit, though, that Salisbury's original steak is a lot better sounding than the version that's come down to us today in TV dinners and school cafeterias. In fact, it's an almost spot-on version of our ideal modern hamburger, while a cheap, filler-packed Salisbury steak is much closer to a fricadelle than anything else. His diet might be suspect, but James Salisbury's hamburger recipe is top-notch. To my way of thinking, there are basically two styles of hamburger. As I get my grinder ready, one is a skinny patty, maybe a quarter pound tops, kind of greasy, ideally. Oops. A lot of the flavor comes from the crust. More like the kind of the fast food style, AKA the smash burger. Although of course they're not always gonna be smashed. Sometimes you just form the patty, but basically a thinner patty, sometimes more than one. Typically the patty is gonna be, you know, less than a quarter pound. Usually it's gonna be cooked well done basically because they're, they're typically skinny enough that, that you can't really get the, get the doneness less than that. The diner style burger, the fast food style burger, I don't mean any disrespect by that because I actually, that's probably the style of burger that I cook more often than any other. I sort of call them my winter burgers because they don't grill very well because they're so thin, I find personally. And so I typically will cook those inside the house on the stovetop, in a saute pan or on a griddle, whatever you got. And then the other style, fatter, third of a pound and up to maybe a half pound, although that's, that's pretty friggin' huge for a burger. Thicker patty much more likely to be cooked to something like medium rare or medium. I personally like them on the grill. They're typically the style of burger that you'll find in a, you know, a higher end burger joint or, you know, a place with some pretensions to quality. Although really, I don't think that one or the other is, is better or worse. I just think they're two different styles. I'm not going to be focusing on the, the thin patty this show. We're going to be making the thick patty. And specifically, I've got some, I've got some meat here. I'm going to grind it because the one thing I've always, I've always been hesitant to voice an opinion on is exactly how beef should be ground. And I probably won't fully satisfy all of my curiosity on how to grind beef for a hamburger today, but I'm hoping that I can make at least some inroads into sort of understanding a little bit about the way that the grind works. So let me give you just an overview of what we've got going on here. I've got a chuck I got a chuck roast and I've got some short ribs and I'm going to combine those together to make a grind. It's really common, you know, especially in this style of burger uh, where a lot of the attention is going to be on the flavor of the beef itself because it's such a large percentage of the sandwich. It's pretty common to have multiple cuts of beef and you can wallow uh, until your heart is content in the ins and outs of different grind styles and stuff. And if you're a butcher, this is, is I'm sure, a very relevant topic because you're actually going to have all these cuts available to you and you will actually be able to make different proportion of burger grinds. But if you're the end consumer or if you're a restaurant, you can also do the same thing, especially if you're ordering from a custom butcher who is going to make a mix to your specifications, then it's really worth getting into the weeds, you know, for how much percentage of of short rib versus, uh, say round versus sirloin versus brisket you know, you can go nuts on this stuff. Um, but for the majority of us who are not buying meat in bulk, that's all kind of academic. Um, but if we are buying meat to grind on our own, we can control the grind itself. Today, I'm just going to explore a few different types of grind and what that will mean when we actually form it into patties and throw it on the grill. What I'm looking for is a loose texture, but I want the patty to hold together. So I don't want it to crumble. I don't want to take a bite of it 
and have it fall apart. But I also don't want it to have, sometimes uh, the bigger, thicker burgers can, you can slice them and they're almost like too compact, if you know what I mean. Like you can't really tell that it's ground beef anymore and it starts to get more of a sausagey texture. And we don't, I don't want that in a, in a burger. Like I kind of feel like it should almost kind of like fall apart when you take a bite. It should just come off real cleanly and easily. It should like break off instead of being easy to, you know, you're not like cutting it. You're not making an even neat slice. You want there to be like some cragginess. You want there to be some texture. You want to feel the individual sort of chunks of beef as opposed to a more homogenous texture. So I don't want, I don't want this to be too homogenous. On the other hand, again, I don't want it to just be like, sort of big chunks that are attached to each other. So it needs to be a single unity, but I don't want it to be like a sausage. I don't want it to be like a meatloaf. I don't want it to be like a terrine. So that's kind of what I'm going to do here. I mean, I've spent some time grind grinding beef for, for hamburgers for sure, but I never really thought that much about it. I have spent a lot of time uh, grinding pork for sausage, and I've thought quite a bit about it and experimented with some different ways. And there's there's a, I'm going to, so I'm going to apply a few little techniques. So I've got, I'm looking here. I've just pulled all this stuff out of the freezer. So it'd be nice and cold. And I have two plates. I have one plate where it's mostly lean beef. Again, this is chuck and short ribs. And the other is mostly fat. And the reason that I'm doing this is because one of the things I really like to do in sausage making is I like to grind my fat on the smallest die that I have. And that makes sure that it gets really, it gets cut up really small and it incorporates very, very well into the finished product. In sausage, we're looking to make an emulsion, essentially. Even in a coarse ground sausage, it's still, it's not emulsified in the same way that a hot dog is emulsified, but it does still have, like you want that, you want the fat to remain trapped in a protein matrix. We're kind of going after the same thing here, but we don't want to have a sausage texture. We just want to have sufficient fat that it, you're going to perceive it as like, oh, this is juicy. So I'm going to, I'm going to be shooting for roughly between 20 and 25% fat in my final grind, which is one of the reasons that I separated out so that I can at least have a little bit of understanding of about what my final lean to fat ratio is going to be. But the main reason that I do it and the main reason I do it for sausage is again, so I can grind it on the finest dye that I have. So I get really small fat that mixes really evenly throughout the whole grind at the end. So I'm going to go ahead and turn on my grinder and grind this through my smallest plate, which actually before I get going, let me just double check. I can't remember what it is. It's really small. Uh, it is a, oops. This is a three millimeter plate, uh, grinding die, very small. And if you don't have super cold fat, it's really easy to smear it. So I've taken the throat and the worm and the cutters and the die. I've frozen those. And I've frozen my meat, not frozen solid, but just spent a little time in the, in the freezer. Joys of the small die are many, including that stuff likes to jam. So I like to do it first for that reason. And now I'm going to switch to my lean meat, or my, my, put my fat back in the freezer while we're finishing up here and I'm going to switch and now I'm going to do the rest. I'm going to do my lean meat here. I'm going to split this into three and the first batch of the lean meat, I'm going to run through the 12 millimeter die once. The second batch of the lean meat, I'm going to run through the 12 millimeter die once and then I'm going to run it through the six millimeter die once. So it'll get a double grind. And then the third batch of this lean meat, I'll run through the six millimeter die once. So I get a really super, super chunky grind uh, with the 12 millimeter die. Then I'll get a sort of a medium fine grind with the six millimeter die. And then I'll do a double grind. Uh, because double grinding is really, really common. And I'm curious to see if in this larger burger, 
it is too fine or if it gives me a nice texture. So I'm not actually sure uh, what's gonna happen here. But this is a fairly straightforward technique that we're engaging in. So it should tell me something. And this, again, this isn't exactly lean meat. This is, it's a lot of it's pretty fatty. So that is 1150 grams of lean meat. Let's just go 380 grams of each, 375. So there's 375 and I think we'll just do 375 for each one. Close enough. Well, let's run the first batch into the big die, the 12 millimeter die, once. There's 12 millimeter. And that's, it's super, super chunky. Like, it's very large. I have a feeling that that is probably gonna be the least successful of the three, just cause it's so, it's so big. I have a feeling it's gonna be kind of crumbly. Well, now let's run this second batch. So that's run through once. Now let me split, take my second die and do the old double grind. So loading up the 12 or the six millimeter. And as always, when you are double grinding, only drop a very small amount of the meat in at each time. You wanna let it mostly get ground because you wanna avoid clogging up the, the worm. So take it real gentle on the second go around. Let the first batch clear before you add the second. Always remember when grinding, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. You don't wanna be mashing down on the pusher ever. That is how you heat things up, start melting out the fats, and get a, you'll wind up with a real dry, mealy texture. It's the same, exact same thing as for sausage. You just gotta take it slow. So in this case, yeah, it's a much more homogenous texture. In fact, I, I think a lot of the, the sort of regular store-bought ground beef is typically double ground. And this, it looks about like, like this. You know, it, it comes out of the out of the dye in distinct, you know, little spaghettis. But uh, but you can pretty well easily mash it into something. It's not quite a paste. You know, there's a definite texture to it, but uh, it's it's not at all chunky. Like you know, the original, like the single the single grind on the big one comes out in definite like plugs of distinct meat. Whereas uh, this double grind is a lot more homogenous. So now let me just run a single grind through the through the six millimeter die and we'll see what the difference is here. This is one of my, a single run through, through this six millimeter die is one of my favorite sausage grinds. It's real kind of chunky still, but it's, it's also got a nice kind of homogenous texture to it. So the interesting thing too is that the single grind the fat and the lean meat are much more distinct from each other than they are in the double grind. Like you can you can distinctly see like streaks of darker, leaner meat versus chunks of actual fat. So the fat's not gonna quite be as incorporated here as it is in the double grind. So that pretty well takes care of that. So that's my grinding done. Go ahead and break this down. Now I'm gonna add back the fat that I've already ground, that again is ground on the small die. And let's see how much of this fat I have. And again, I'm just gonna evenly split it into thirds. So I've got 357 grams of fat and I had 1100 grams of, almost 1200 grams of lean meat, so this is gonna get me to roughly 25%, which is, again, a little higher than you're gonna get at the store, but that's okay, because we kinda want this to be a little bit fattier, a little bit richer, a little bit juicier burger. And remember too, there's a fair amount of lean meat involved as well. So that's 362, so I'm gonna add 120 grams to each of my 300 something, 365 grams of lean-ish. All right, just a very gentle mix to all of this. Never, ever, ever handle your 
ground beef for a hamburger any more than you absolutely have to. And the reason is we do not want to, we don't want to make a sausage. We don't want to develop the myosin. We want the meat to be as minimally handled as we possibly can do it. So I'm going to cover all these, let them sit, let them chill, and I will revisit them tomorrow when it's time to fire up the grill because I still have to, uh, I still got to bake the bread. Well, you can't have a burger without a bun, so let's make some buns. For the, you know, the more fast foody type, diner type, thin patty, uh, greasy seared awesome sort of elemental burger for those i like personally just like a cheap bun softer the better uh it doesn't have to be very flavorful it doesn't have to stand up to a lot other than a just a big beefy burger blast um, and maybe some cheese and some mayonnaise because that's what i like on all my burgers the vegetables can come in a different form i'm much less enthusiastic about like warm limp lettuce as i than i was when i was younger <laughs> We're not here to talk about burger toppings. It's not the most interesting topic about burgers, I think. What we're just gonna be talking about today is, uh, is the burger and the bun and possibly something else. Maybe we'll do a side dish, I don't know. If we do, it'll be onion rings because I love onion rings. But we gotta have a bun. And so for the, for the bigger burger, where it really is like you want the beef to be a little nicer, a little sort of beefier, it's everything's a little bit more refined. It's a little bit, uh, it's less sort of like elemental greasy happiness and more like here's a nice, rich, beefy flavor. It's big. You need a bun with some big flavor. You need a bun with some substance because you got a big patty of meat. You can't have some wimpy, soft little bun that's going to get overwhelmed by the much larger. Uh, hamburger patty, probably going to involve, uh, if you're going to use cheese, which of course I'm going to use cheese, probably going to involve like a little more robust cheese than the American cheese that I'm totally going to want on my, on my skinny, smashy, seared up, crusty, awesome, greasy diner burger type. So we need so we need a bread that's going to stand up a little bit more. We need something. We want it to be a little more complex. So I'm going to you know there's a, there's some uh, some very popular different styles of bun here. There is the potato bun, which also works really well on the diner style burger. There's the pretzel bun, which personally I've never been a huge fan of. Then there's the brioche bun, which is of course like sort of the all the rage right now. Which personally again I think is uh, I think it's a little overdone. I think it's a little bit overzealous. I think it's too rich. I think there's not a lot of, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't do enough to counter the, the burger. It's almost, it's just like too much. It's like hitting you over the head and I don't want to be hit over the head. I just want something a little bit chiller. I want something that will maybe have a little bit of acidity that will, uh, you know, will, will sort of cut through the fat a little bit, but not over much. You know, I don't want a bread that's filled with tons of butter and tons of sugar and is super super rich i want it to be something that's going to have a little bit of a nice a nice acidity to it uh something that'll sort of contrast with the the fatty richness of the beef but i also don't want something chewy you know i don't want a sourdough i don't want some bread with a super dense crumb uh and well super dense where it's not completely blown open and giant bubbles and stuff i want to find even grained bread that will also that'll also have just a little bit of a of a tang to it. So I'm obviously thinking of a fairly simple buttermilk bread. And in this case, I'm going to use one out of the legendary bread baker's cookbook entitled Bread by the great Jeffrey Hamelman, one of the key texts for any serious baker. And it starts out with a pre-ferment. This one is a pot fermenté. And a pot fermenté, literally, it just means old bread, basically. Well, it means fermented bread or fermented paste. But typically, a pot fermenté would be used in a bakery where they just grab a chunk of the old dough from today, from yesterday's batch and use it to raise today's batch. It gets you uh, a lot of the advantages of, of pre-fermenting some dough. You get a lot more intense flavor. You get better keeping qualities. Uh, you get a better 
crumb structure, you get all sorts of advantages. You don't have to go to the trouble of making, say, a poolish or a, a biga, which are the two sort of typical ready-made ones. But uh, in this case, we're actually <laughs> we're not making a full batch of bread and then pulling off a, a chunk of it. We are just going to be making our pot fermenté straight off the bat. And the only difference between it and the other kinds of pre-ferments, the poolish and the biga, is that the pot fermenté includes salt and the others don't. And that's pretty much it. So the first thing that we're going to do is we make our pot fermenté and that will ferment overnight, 12 to 16 hours. I'll probably let it go till the evening, stick it in the fridge overnight, and then pull it out tomorrow, uh, warm it up a little bit before we make the final bread dough. This is 100% flour, 65% water, 2% salt, and 2% yeast. And this is just for the pot fermenté side of things. So I'm gonna, let's make 400, let's make 300, eh, let's make 400, I think we want that much. I know, yeah, let's make 400. 400 grams of flour, which is going to be half of the overall volume. And this is a good demonstration of why Baker's math is so helpful. I just basically pulled that number <laughs> out, of, uh, out of my head. Uh, I wasn't really sure how much I was going to make, but this seems like an appropriate amount. So 100% of 400 is 400, and then I'm supposed to put 65% water. So I'm supposed to put 260 grams of water. And see how easy that was? That is why we use Baker's percentages and the metric system. Okay, and 400%, so 2% of... 400, eight grams of salt, and eight grams of yeast. Okay, so, got all that together. And so now I'm just gonna mix it real quick, just to make it a smooth paste. I'm not really trying to, you know, I'm not mixing it like it's bread dough necessarily. I just kinda wanna get it to, a homogenous paste. I'm not trying to go nuts and develop window panes and all that stuff. I'm just trying to get a paste. And this is gonna rise overnight. Well, 12 hours. 12 hours at room temperature is kind of ideal. By tomorrow, it will be ready to finish making a loaf of bread or rolls, buns. Buns is what we're after, buns. So in case you needed more demonstration of the superiority of using recipes for bread that use percentages and baker's math, here's another one. So yesterday when, I'm, when I was making my original pot fermenté, I thought that all of the white flour in this recipe went into it. This recipe is half white and half wheat flour. And I completely misread the original formula and didn't realize that uh, not all of the white flour went into the pot fermenté. So only half of the original amount of white flour went in. So when, I'm, when I added 400 grams of the white flour to make my pot fermenté, I thought then that I only had to add another 400 grams. In fact, <laughs> only half of the white flour goes in originally, which means, so the total amount of white flour would be 800 grams, and then I'd have to add another 800 grams of whole wheat flour, which is way too much for my mixer. However, all I have to do is cut my amount of pot fermenté in half. I just weighed out the, the total amount of my risen pot fermenté, cut that in half, and then I just have to recalculate, because I have percentages and I know what all the percentages are supposed to be, uh, I just had to recalculate the whole recipe starting from the beginning with the amounts that I actually used, which is really pretty simple. If there were no percentages involved, it would have involved a whole lot of figuring out the original percentages and then transferring, and it would have been very frustrating. But I'm really bad at math, and it was like two minutes of math. <laughs> and... and, and it probably could have been a lot shorter if I was better at math. So I have fixed my original problem. I have cut my pot fermenté in half, and now I'm gonna have a total of 800 grams of flour in this complete final recipe, which my mixer can actually handle, instead of 1,600 grams of flour, which my mixer cannot deal with at all. Let's begin. 
So I'm gonna add an extra 200 grams of white bread flour, and I'm gonna add 400 grams of whole wheat flour. There we go, 600 grams of total flour now, and thanks to my handy dandy simple calculations, I know all of the rest of the stuff that I need to add. I need to add 17 more grams of water, I need to add five more grams of salt, I need to add four more grams of yeast and 464 grams of buttermilk, which should be right about a pint. So let's tear that, get my dry ingredients in. So five grams of salt, four more grams of yeast. I need 17 grams of water and I need 464 grams of buttermilk. So that's good. And I'm going to start mixing this and we'll be adding the pot fermenté in chunks, which is usually the way that you incorporate the pre-ferments. So with a pot fermenté dough, unlike a poolish and a biga, is typically will get a pretty hefty charge of yeast the second time. With a poolish and a biga, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, you're getting your primary yeast culture also from the pre-ferment. You'll add a little bit to sort of, uh, you know, have a little bit of fresh yeast going on in the in the bulk rise. But with the pot fermenté, because it's old, the original uh, format of it was old dough. A lot of the yeast was already kind of spent. Um, they, they'll typically be a little bit older than the poolish and the biga. So you're going to add a fairly hefty charge of yeast to the uh, to the main batch, which is good because it means that you don't have to worry so much about timing. With a Polish and a Biga, if you let them go for too long, then the yeast has lost a lot of its uh, initial charge. And since you're relying on them for a lot more of the rise, uh, it can be a real problem and you can get a denser bread. But with a pot fermenté dough, typically, again, this is usually, not always, typically it'll get uh, a pretty significant charge of yeast in the main dough. So I'm just gonna start mixing on low here for the first bit. And as we're mixing, I'm just gonna pull off chunks of the pot fermenté and add them in. And as this is going on, I'm distinctly remembering that in one of the last batch of shows, I invited everyone to listen to the horrible groaning sounds that my mixer made and make fun of me if they were still happening on the next shows because it means that I didn't uh, replace the gears and rebuild the mixer like I was supposed to. Well, as you can hear, I did not do that. So please, by all means, when you see me, feel free to make fun of me for completely failing to fix my mixer. So that is a nice, so that's a nice, uh, couple minutes on the lowest speed and now I'm going to just crank it up just a little bit and let it work for uh, probably three minutes. Uh, hey, I get KitchenAid to send me a new mixer. <laughs> this one's got a short in it too. All right, so let's see. Uh, let me take a look here at my dough, get a sense of the stretch here. It's fairly wet dough, which is pretty common. It's Got a lot of moisture in it and it's a whole wheat dough so you're not going to get the same sort of window pane effect uh at least as strong of a gluten development as you would with a lot more white flour but you just want to make sure you know just pulled it apart it's got decent strength so i think this will rise all right uh i'm pretty happy with that so we're just gonna let this dough now go through its bulk fermentation for the next couple of hours and really from here on out it's pretty standard uh, bread dough making. I'm going to divide it up into equal size buns uh, and of about 100 grams each, which is a solid size for a solid burger bun. And then they'll just get baked. Not that much more exciting to say about the buns. So the rest of it is a fairly standard fold and divide, shape, bake. All right, I said earlier that we might do a side dish, and we will. We're gonna do the best side dish for hamburgers. The best. I'm speaking, of course, of onion rings. For all you people that thought I was gonna say french fries, 
Onion rings are better than french fries. I mean, for one thing, onions are better than potatoes. So you're already starting out superior. All onion rings are good. There's a lot of bad french fries out there. There's not too many. There are some. I mean, I've had bad onion rings, but there's not many of them. Even the, even the most industrial kind of like generic batter heavy onion rings where the onion ring pulls out of the batter and then you just have like a hollow shell of batter even those are pretty good i like those but my favorite style of onion rings although i love them all i love tempura style onion rings i love i love the heavy batter style onion rings but my favorite kind of onion rings the best onion rings on the planet were at a place outside of morgan city louisiana called chester's which is a fried chicken restaurant which is unfortunately no longer in existence. They finally gave it up after being open since the 30s. I think they only do catering now. These onion rings are so fantastic that they actually made a mention in Bob Dylan's autobiography. He was on a motorcycle trip and he stopped by Chester's and wasn't very hungry. His wife got the chicken. He got a plate of the onion rings. These onion rings uh, at Chester's are fantastic. They are legendary, and they are very, very lightly battered. And this is the kind of place where you don't really know exactly what their multitudes of secrets were. But it's a very, very light, basically just barely floured. So what I've done today to attempt to at least get in the ballpark of these fabulous Chester's onion rings, my favorite onion rings in the world, is I've soaked some onions in a brine of buttermilk and salt, which is a really classic fried chicken brine in the South. So it stands to reason that we might not be that far off of uh, assuming that those guys might have had a bunch of buttermilk and salt kicking around that they maybe marinated their chicken in because their chicken is equally legendary. Again, nobody knows what exactly it is, what exactly is in it. It stands to reason that that is certainly a possibility that chicken or that uh, buttermilk and salt are heavy ingredients in the famous Chester's onion rings. Having made onion rings basically this way before, I know that even though they are not Chester's onion rings, they are nevertheless magnificent onion rings. So I got a big pot of fat happening here. We're going to deep fry them. This fat is, I think, half clarified butter or half ghee, half uh, canola oil. It's nice having stuff like that kicking around. And I uh, sliced my onion rings on the mandolin. Uh, not the thinnest blade, but the second thinnest. If they're too thin, I have made them that thin before. If they're too thin, they're a little too, like, they get almost like a little crispy, almost like a fried shallot, you know, or like French's fried onion rings, which is good, obviously, because it's fried onions, and fried onions are... Essentially, the single greatest, most versatile, most useful food you can possibly have. But that is not what I want for these onion rings. What I want these to be, they need to be still a little bit soft. So they, you want them to be a soft onion on the inside uh, with still a little bit of bite to them. So they need to have, they need to be big enough that they're not just going to cook all the way through and get completely soft. You don't want the really big, thick, heavy ring like you need for the batter style onion ring that's just a little too much like you don't want this to remain like a complete ring these when they when you finish cooking these they wind up looking just being a big pile of gorgeous confused onion rings as opposed to the sort of definitive o shape of particularly the more industrialized styles of uh, onion ring and tempura onion rings for that matter those usually have a have a much more integrity to them. And the actual frying of this onion ring is pretty much exactly like the frying of anything else. Get your oil up to between 335 and 350 and fry away. Just about there. Get my spider ready. And they look gorgeous. I just drained them. I drained them of the buttermilk. They basically soaked in the brine for, I don't know, maybe eight hours, um, and then I just drained them and put them into some seasoned flour, seasoned with uh, salt, seasoned with a little black pepper, and a little cayenne. And I, I actually, I, I, was, I thought that I had cornstarch, and I didn't. 
because I really like this mixed half and half flour and cornstarch. Uh, you get a really super, super crispy, shattery outside uh, when you do it that way. We talked about the advantages of cornstarch and frying before. It's really, uh, it's really magnificent, but unfortunately I didn't have any today, and that's just how it goes sometimes. It's still gonna be awesome because you can just look at them, you can see like they're just, they're so, they're craggy and they're delicious and there's little, little chunks of batter just barely stuck to them, but it's not heavy, it's not thick. They are, it looks like definitely just a bunch of piles of onions. There isn't a thick batter here. And uh, they're just gonna come out deliciously crunchy. And I'm very excited about this. And where are we at here? We're at 334 degrees. I'm gonna give it just another minute. Shake my onions free of any excess batter. Well, it's not batter, it's a breading. It's a coating is what it is. I am at 340 degrees. I'm gonna call that good. And let's start dropping these in. This is probably gonna take two batches. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Give them a stir so they don't stick together. Look at those. Oh, beautiful. They are rapidly turning color. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, these look, these look very similar to Chester's. They might be a little thicker. I wonder if they had a, a slicer that was like between my number two and number one on my mandolin. Cause theirs definitely seemed a little bit thinner and a little bit floppier than these. These are beautiful. I like this style of onion ring because it really brings the onion to the forefront. The batter ones are good, but they tend to, the batter can kind of overwhelm everything. Whereas with this style, it is all onion all the time. And we are there. These are very light golden brown, incredibly beautiful. I don't even need a hamburger. I would just eat piles of onion rings. <laughs> this is not quite Chester's, but these are some pretty amazing onion rings right here. Oh yeah, so good. I don't know what their magic was. Maybe it was just because I've been going there since I was like two weeks old, but whatever their magic was, I've almost got it here. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know what the extra little bit is. One day though, one day I'll find it and I will finally have my perfect onion ring. That day is not today, but man, it is pretty darn close. Okay, we're gonna get our sample burgers made up and weighed out here. So these are gonna be 150 grams each, which is almost exactly one quarter of a pound, or one third of a pound. One pound being 454 grams. So I've got them nice and mashed, or uh, mixed together with the fat. And I'm just gonna very loosely add them in. So that's 119, 150, exactly. And I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna season them yet because I don't want to heavily develop the myosin. I am just going to very gently, oops, just reminding me that my chimney starter needs to be spread out, but I've already done it. I'm just gonna form this into a nice patty, very gently, very, very gently. It is about one inch thick or so, not terribly large. I could go slightly bigger, but again, I don't want these particular ones to be mega giant, but certainly you could go up to a half pound. And I think, uh, have a perfectly reasonably sized burger. Anything bigger than that starts getting kind of ridiculous. That one right there was the single grind. Oh wait, no, sorry. That one was the double grind. One on the one on the 12 millimeter plate and one one on the six millimeter plate. This one is going to be the single grind. Single grind once on the six millimeter plate. So it's a little chunkier in texture, not quite as homogenous. Mixed here with 
again, about between 20 and 25% of its weight in the fat that is very finely ground. And let's go ahead again. Burgers, unlike with sausage, you don't want to mix them too, too heavily. Just nice and easy. We don't want to develop that heavy texture. Or as Salisbury said, if you press on them too much, they can get livery. And he's not wrong. Although I think that has more to do with the cut that he was using. If I remember correctly, he wants you to use uh, the round. So for our last one, I gotta make sure I keep these in the right orientation so I don't get them confused with each other. For the last one here, we're going to, this will be the one where everything is ground on the 12 millimeter. So this is the chunkiest, except for the, you know, the, obviously the fat again, is ground on the small die. But this is, it's visibly considerably chunkier. Three lovely patties. And now I think it's uh, time to give these guys a little, a little cook cook. What do you think? Let's see. Let's see which one of these comes out on top. So I'm gonna bring these out there and then I have not seasoned these yet. So I'm gonna bring my salt out because again, we salt these as late as possible. And here we are outside and I built a pretty sizable fire but I've only built it on half of the grill. I wanna have a cool side and a hot side always. Now, before I do these, I'm gonna do a little something that I always do on these thicker patties, which is to give a little bit of an indentation in the center. Not too much, but you just kinda of wanna flat, push the center down just a little bit, and you gotta kinda of shape the outside as you do it so you don't get too many crags. But what'll happen is if you don't do this, your burgers will tend to balloon up a little bit because as the meat cooks, it shrinks. And with the way that there's not really a definable grain in these, uh, in these burgers, it tends to balloon up in the middle, which we don't want. All right, here we go. I'm gonna go ahead and pull them up. I'm gonna sprinkle a little salt on the side that's going on the grill, fairly heavy, pat it down. Boom, on the grill. Again, sprinkle a little salt on the flat side, pat it down, and finally, for my 12 millimeter grind, same deal. Okay, we got burgers cooking. Now before I flip them, I want them to be nice and seared, so I've got a really hot fire that's, uh, that's gonna get them super hot, get them nice and started, and then I'm just gonna keep sort of rotating them in and out of the, the hot side of the grill and the cool side to give them a little time to cook, to get them so that they're not just blazing fat and, and getting super fiery and getting gnarly because we don't want to have that really hot fiery taste, that carbonized flavor. I'm just rotating them in and out over the hot zone because I need to get, before I start flipping them because I want them to keep together, before I start flipping them, I need to have uh, a solid sear on the outside, otherwise the possibility of uh, them falling apart becomes a lot higher. So I'm just gonna pass them over the hot side of the coals for you know 20 or 30 seconds each time uh, for a few times until they get you know a nice sear on the bottom. Here they go, hot side. I don't want them to cook too fast on this side. Spin it around. I really like the spinning technique uh, of the on a circular, on a kettle grill, makes it a lot easier to uh, regulate your temperature. You just keep spinning the grill. So I'll give them one more pass on the hot side and then bring them over back to the cold side. And now I think I can start flipping them. Give them a little bit. We'll give them a little more. Always remember when you're cooking things, don't ever force them. If they seem like they're gonna stick a little bit, don't force them let them cook just a little more because once something gets to the point of having enough of a browning, enough of a sear on it to be worth flipping over, at that point, typically it will release from whatever it is that you're cooking it on. So, so don't fight it too much. The one sort of exception to that is fish. Fish, as we all know, can stick and stick really bad. And they're a little bit soft still. 
I'll just keep spinning them around. Gentle little cook. And I would rather, always, 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 I would much rather develop a strong, strong sear on one side and then just cook it very lightly on the other than to try to get a good sear on both sides and then overcook everything. Much better idea to, uh, to leave it on one side until it's really close to being done and then flip it and give it a really, really light sear on the other side, I find. It's starting to let go. There we go. Interestingly, the, uh, the double grind one has let go the least. The other two are almost completely released. The double grind one still has a little section of it that uh, seems to want to grip on the grill. The big single grind definitely at this point, the edges are separate a little bit. Like it's not quite as unified looking as the other two, which is interesting. There, they are all released. They're still a little rare on the inside. We try to flip. So let's keep them cooking. All right. Drop a little salt on the top, the unseasoned side. And already the indentation that was here is gone. I can tell they're still quite juicy on the inside. Still very pretty pink. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they look tasty. Curious to see which one of these I'm gonna prefer. Okay. Spin them around again. Let them continue to cook. Are we ready for the flip? I think we are. So we're gonna flip, we're gonna flip, and we're gonna flip. Got a beautiful sear on the outside. Really, really quite magnificent. Uh, one thing that may be a problem is for my, for the one with the, the thickest grind, the one with the largest, chunkiest grind, is definitely has less integrity than the other two. Um, there's a chunk of it that's kind of starting to fall off. <laughs> which kind of sucks, but oh well. Not gonna take as much time on this side, I can tell. We're actually pretty close to being done. In fact, I am gonna call us good. All right. Whew. Intense. Close up the grill so that I can reuse the charcoal. And now I'm looking three quite lovely patties. I can tell just by touching them, these are gonna be kind of medium-ish, I'm thinking. And just on visual inspection, uh, I think that the, the one with the real chunky one, the, the real chunky grind, is a, it just looks a little too chunky. Uh, I feel like it's not gonna have, I feel like it's not gonna hold up too well. But here we go. We're gonna start with the top one, which is the double grind. And I'm lifting it up and it has, like I can kind of push on it. It's not falling apart. It seems like it does have some solid integrity. Um, you know, again, with these cooked this way, I got a solid sear on one side, really, really dark and not much of a sear on the other side, almost like a scallop. <laughs> so I'm gonna take a bite of this one. Mm. That is a tasty burger. So. I think that that one has a nice, really solid texture. It definitely feels like, it definitely feels like a very conventional grind. That's a burger I've had a lot before. Mm. Now I'm on the single grind, six millimeter. So the slightly chunkier one. And it definitely feels like it has a little bit, a little bit more of a toothsome texture. It is very definitely less homogenous. It's chunkier. I would describe it as slightly, I perceive it as maybe a little juicier. It's really quite delicious. I think that the differences between it, the differences between it and the double grind burger is that the double grind burger definitely has a bit of a, a little bit of a pastier texture. Um, you, you, you really notice it when you go back and forth from one to the other. They're both pretty good. I mean, they're both fine, but I, I, there's like a cragginess to the way that the, the way that the single grind goes into your mouth that I'm really enjoying. I'm wondering a little bit if I'm actually gonna like the the other one even more because it's gonna have even more texture even though it's a little not as nice looking and slightly more difficult to handle. It's definitely a little softer. 
it definitely breaks breaks apart in a very different way. It breaks apart on on the lines of the uh, of the grind. I would oh wow, I'm actually very surprised by. I didn't expect to like this one as much, honestly. Honestly, I think it's my favorite. The way that it it has a very it's a different texture. So the the double grind is definitely like that feels like the really like the kind of burger that we've all had a million times. There's nothing wrong with it, but I'm really enjoying the way that the chunkier grind absolutely has has a, a different feel, and I like it the best. I'm really surprised, honestly. I really didn't expect that. <laughs> it definitely requires a little bit more care on the grill, um, and you definitely wouldn't want to turn it too early or when it was sticking because I think it would come completely apart. But it seems like it has like just a really straightforward, clear, beefy flavor. And it also has a texture to it. Like it's very, it's very interesting in the mouth. You know, you can feel the different, uh, the different chunks of meat. It is not, there's nothing generic about it. Which is funny because it's not my favorite texture for sausage. I mean, I do make some sausages that are, that are ground on the big chunky one, and some of my favorite sausages are. But in general, I find it a little bit too much in a sausage. But here, honestly, honestly, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, again, I'm really surprised that this is how I feel about this. When I grind meat in the future for a burger, I'm going to do it on the big die. And that is a really surprising result. Give it a shot. I recommend it. But again, make sure you grind your fat on the small die because that also, that helps a lot, trust me. If the fat was in here, ground on the big die, it would be super chunky and it really wouldn't be that appealing. But because of the fat's on the small die, the bigness of the meat really comes through. So, so I learned something today and hopefully you did too. There's a lot of very subtle things in cooking and again, with the, the basic double grind and the other one, the other single grind on the smaller die, like nobody would really, nobody would object to that. There's nothing wrong with it. But for me, when you put them all together and you taste them all in succession, it is, it is clear to me that the large die is the way to go. So chunkier meat for your hamburgers. Who knew? I don't think I'd like that texture in like a meatloaf or a meatball. But man, it really totally 100% works for these hamburgers. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebane. This is the second episode of the first summer 2021 season of Check the Pantry. Support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Additional support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who has worked at Michelin Star restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.